morning is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, verses through chapter 3, verse 21. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On, you, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The word of the Lord. So two comments before I jump into our sermon today. First is that today's sermon is more PG-13 than PG. 
Uh, I'm not going to be shock jock with language, but I am going to be clear in some of the terms I'm going to use. And so if you have kids 10 years old, younger, that you don't want to be in this, I'm just going to give you a a warning on that now. And um, explain because I need to be clear in this. Second is that uh, a lot of our material that I'm using for this sermon uh, and for a couple others coming after this in the series come from um, a friend of mine, uh, Sam uh, Andreades, which is, who was a pastor for years in Greenwich Village and at the Village Church in New York City. He's written a very helpful book called Engendered. Uh, he spoke at a conference here in the Triangle uh, with that material, and I'm using some of that today, and we'll reference that. But if you want to read further on this this is a really, really helpful book, and I just want to give credit where it's due. So let me, uh, before we turn our attention to God's Word uh, together, let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our fortress and our redeemer. Amen. So today is sermon number four in our series on gender and the gospel. And if you have missed us, you're just now joining in. We've spent three weeks talking about Genesis 1 and 2, about what it means to be created by God in His image, about what gender actually, where gender comes from and what it actually means, how we think about that uh, as a community together. And today we shift from creation in Genesis 1 and 2 to fall which is Genesis 3. And after that, we're going to go to redemption. What does it mean to be a redeemed community, thinking about how redemption applies to us and our bodies in gendered bodies now? Um, But I had us read this morning the last sentence of chapter 2. And it was sort of the last statement in chapter 2 of what it meant to still be in God's good earth before the fall as people in bodies. And you remember what it said? God's, God says this over his newly created equal asymmetrical image bearers. And they were naked and not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. Now, there's a reality show that was produced for the Discovery Channel called Naked and Afraid. Uh, and the premise of the show was that you had people who would go and try to survive for 21 days in hostile conditions in the wilderness, buck naked. Now, I have to confess, I've never watched this show, which is a dangerous pastor thing to do in a sermon for something you haven't seen. But I understand for the, for the show, uh, for the Discovery Show, of course, they, they do that thing with the camera where they pixelate the bodies, and these people are trying to survive in the, in the elements. Now, if there was a reality show based on Genesis chapter 2, it could be called Naked and Not Ashamed, right? That, that's a statement of how God's created world was people in perfect relationship with God, with one another, and even with themselves, with their own bodies. Um, And that's a statement that has never been true of any person ever since. Ever since the fall, every person experiences in their bodies the fall and all the ramifications of that. Everything, so every, I can't think of a single person who could say naked and unashamed. Even, Even the people who are on the, certi- the, the TV show Naked and Afraid, I don't think they can say that. They might be certifiably naked and crazy to try to survive in the, jun- the jungle or the desert or the Arctic naked for 21 days, um, but not naked and unashamed. And, and these words, uh, this is the, the verdict that stands over the first two chapters of the Bible, and it stands in stark contrast to everything that comes after. Look at verse 10. This is what 
Adam's own statement was post-fall, I was naked and so I hid. Naked and ashamed. So today, as we pick up God's Word again, we're going to look at what does it mean to experience the fall in our bodies with decay and corruption? Uh, what does it mean for us to experience this? And it's, it's described for you immediately in chapter 2. Look at these verses. Um, verse 16, pain in childbearing. Verse 17, pain in growing food. Verse 18, sweat and toil. Verse 10, body shame. There's a profound sense of alienation from our bodies. And so here's our outline for today. So I'm going to talk about how uh, everybody's on the spectrum, uh, about the disfigured one, and then how grace has no spectrum. But before I do so, I want to start with some language. And this, um, because in the last five to six years, there are a lot of terms that have come to common use in our culture that weren't there in just a few years ago, that we need to make sure that we understand how they're used and what they mean so that we can be people who can have intelligent discourse with people about gender. So I want to talk about terms. This may be tedious for some of you, but I just want to make sure we all have common language and we know what we're talking about. So um, let me walk through this. Gender dysphoria. Is t- gender dysphoria is stress with your body. Distress with the way you are. It's a condition that people often described as being trapped in the wrong body, trapped in the wrong gender. A person feels like they aren't the gender that their birth certificate says. Um, they despise, they hate their body. And often, gender dysphoria is not a condition that exists solely in a person. It is also accompanied by comorbidity. Now, comorbidity is not a statement about being emo or liking to dress in black or talking about death all the time. Comorbidity is simply a statement of saying more than one condition, psychological condition in a person. Okay, so gender dysphoria often has a high rate of comorbidity. That means a person who comes in for a therapy has more than one thing besides gender dysphoria that they need treatment for. Uh, A study was done, a Dutch study, published in the American Journal of Psychology a couple years ago. 61% of cases... uh, in which there are other psychological disorders that come in with a person who first identifies that gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria is the leading cause for them being there. And that number is actually kind of low because it doesn't take into account people who come in for other disorders and then disclose, I'm also struggling with gender identity disorder. Um, So this is, number one, it's it's a real thing. and it's also something that people don't just get over. Like a person who's really struggling, clinically diagnosed as gender dysphoric, is not a person whose issues are going to be resolved by going out for a beer with the guys or going shopping with the girls. You know, it's, it's a real sense of distress. It is a real like crisis condition in this person. And so I don't want to be, in, in the way I talk about this, glib in any way. Like, oh, this is not a big deal. You know, th- this is a big deal for people who are struggling. Um, second term, transgender or transgenderism. This is potentially include, uh, very confusing because the media would have you think that there is a whole spectrum of transgenderism when really there are only two categories. Uh, there are really only two categories. Uh, the first group are those who are gender dysphoric people who experience distress with their bodies as they are. And if you go to a therapist, um, to a counselor, 
uh, secular counselor, most likely if you say, hey, I'm struggling with this, they are going to usher you into a, a beginning of what's called transitioning. And tr- transitioning can take one of three forms, and it usually is in one of three stages. First is dressing like the other gender, so wearing the clothes appro- appropriate culturally to the other gender. Second is hormone treatment. And hormone treatment, as you know, we, are chemi- we, we have complex chemistry in our bodies, and taking hormones is a way of beginning um, a, a permanent process of altering your body. It causes you to either grow hair or not grow hair. It, it begins to change the chemical nature of what you, how you, your body processes um, everything from like food to, to changes in your sexuality. The third is surgical alteration. Um, this is also called either gender reassignment surgery or gender confirmation surgery. And there, there are a lot of things that can be done surgically. But I want to say they're expensive. They're dangerous. There, there, there are potential dangerous side effects to this. Do I need to change microphones? Jonathan, am I good? Okay. All right. um, so let's, the surgical procedures that change from male to female include these things, a uh, penectomy, which is removal of penis, uh, orchiectomy, uh, which is removal of testes, which are typically followed by vaginoplasty, which is creation of a form of a vagina. Um, and then other transition uh, surgeries, which can be everything from shaving of the Adam's apple. Uh, it can be facial reconstruction surgery to, to soften the hard lines of the face. But these are complicated surgeries. This is not something that's easy, easily done, nor is it cheap. Uh, gender reassignment surgery runs at the cheapest end around $100,000. Um, the procedures that change female to male is masculine masculinizing genoplasty. Uh, Procedure uh, creates a sort of a phallus, uh, changes the genitalia, and um, there are other procedures, including uh, mastectomy, a hysterectomy, and perhaps, again, cosmetic features which change the face. In other words, um, these are all surgeries and treatments that can change the outward appearance of a person, right? The the outward appearance. but of course, you can't change your genes. You can't change your chromosomes. It may, may change the outward appearance of the way someone looks. Uh, if you're doing any of these phases, this is called transitioning. Now, a couple of other terms related to this. Uh, cisgender, C-I-S, is a description of a person whose gender on their birth certificate is one they feel comfortable inhabiting in their life. So if you have no sense of, like, I'm in the wrong body, you are labeled as cisgender. Um, Another word is transphobic, is a word applied to anyone who's not on board with the whole gender transitioning enterprise. So if you have any questions or concerns about giving hormone treatments to children, if you think, hey, maybe we're missing something in our discussions about surgery, um, you're called transphobic. And and you may not like that term. You may be like, I'm not a phobic. I'm not afraid of someone who's transgender. But in our culture, anyone who's not like hey, I'm on board with all this, is called transphobic, and and whether you like it or not. Now, if the first group of the transgender are the gender dysphoric, who are the other group? And and to define that group, I need to talk about prevalence of dysphoria in the transgender community. So, um, again, another study in the American Journal of Public Health, 2013, uh, looked 
at how many people are clinically gender dysphoric. And as they, they did the study, they found in one in about 10 to 13,000 men, one in 30 to 44,000 females called, are, are identify as clinically gender transphoric. Uh, trans, so that amounts to about 0.01% of men, um, 0.005% of women. It's mostly a male thing. Um, and, but if you ask the question, how many of those people identify as transgender? It's a lot bigger number. So the numbers are very different. In 2012, about 1 in 250 people in our country identify as transgender. That's 0.3% to 0.47%. So, and, and by the way, those numbers, you can do your own research and you'll be like, your numbers are off. That's because there are lots of studies on this. And those numbers are only going to increase over the next years as our culture becomes more and more like, this is mainstream. This is not a big deal. Um, but here's what I want you to, to think about. Those numbers are very different. If 0.01% are gender transphoric and 0.3% uh, are transgender, what does that tell us? It means that one out of about 30 to 47 people who identify as transgender are truly gender transphoric. That is, they're um, struggling with distress about how they are. The others are not. And they identify as transgender for different reasons. And this is a, this is a story that the secular media is not going to say because it's not very popular to talk about this. But um, what are those reasons? Well, one is just because, like, th there can be entertainment value in changing your clothes to the clothes of the other gender. And that's called cross-dressing. It used to be called transvestitism. That word's kind of fallen out of favor. But cross-dressing um, many times is for just recreational pur purposes. A lot of times it's for sexual arousal purposes. And those people may identify as transgender, but would have nothing to, don't fit the category of gender dysphoric. Um, if a person that does that in public, they're called a drag queen. Um, and, and so that's the two big categories I want you to understand. Transgender is a big umbrella, and it has a small group of truly gender dysphoric and a larger group of people who identify as such, but don't meet that category. Now, some of you have asked, and I've gotten a lot of emails and questions about a category called intersex, formerly hermaphrodism. And I want to cover that briefly, and to do so, I'm going to have to talk science, which is dangerous as an English major in a room full of, like, a lot of NC State grads where you, like, you actually studied science. So um, just humor me, okay? Like, broad sweeping brush categories. That's what English majors do, right? Uh, so if you took high school biology, you may have learned that sexual typing is based on chromosomal, uh, either chromosomes, either you're, if you're a woman, it's XX. If you're a man, it's XY. Um, but what's been discovered is, is it's even more elementary and simpler than that. That it's, it's, it's not your chromosomes, it's actually in your genes. In 1990, um, a researcher in Boston, uh, sorry, in London named Peter Goodfellow led a team the discovery of the SRY gene, which exists on the Y chromosome. And it is literally an on-off switch for male versus female. So if you are XX, which is typically female, you have no Y chromosome, therefore you can't have an SRY gene. But for male, XY, you have a Y chromosome, and you have an SRY gene which can either be turned on or off. And so that means that there are 
Uh, all women who are XX don't have this and therefore are women. Uh, all who are XY, some who the, XY, the SRY gene is flipped on, those will exhibit as men. But there are women who have XY chromosomes who, in whom the, X, the SRY gene is not flipped. And they publicly, and if, like everything about them is woman. And they may not know that. They may go through their entire life and not know that. But this is simpler than even your biology probably you learned in high, in high school. That, but it's also, at the same time, more complex. And it's more complex this way because um, there are a lot of things that can go wrong in human people, right? Oh, I should say this one more thing about the SRY gene. Related to that, there's never been found a gene for homosexuality. There is, this, this gene is an on-off switch for male versus female, but there's never been one that's a gay gene. And that's not for lack of research around that. Um, so we're, as I said, we're, we're very complex people. And we're made with lots of complex systems of enzymes and chromosomes and hormones. And so there is some room for, for error in this. There's room for deviation, uh, for there to be ambiguity in either primary or secondary sex characteristics. And this is called intersex. Um, intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with um, a reproductive or a sexual uh, anatomy that doesn't neatly fit in typical definitions of male or female. Um, formerly, the term for that was hermaphrodism. That's fallen out of favor. Intersex is the term for now. Uh, and there are a number of conditions, and they, they kind of fall into three categories here. Um, the various conditions are chromosomal, hormonal, or enzymes. So a person uh, can have chromosomal issues like Klinefelter syndrome. It's a chromosomal condition in boys and men where the individual has XXY chromosomes. That's about one in 1,000 births. The condition I mentioned before, a woman with a male XY chromosomes but with female genitals can, can, constitutes about one in 80,000 births, and it's called Swire syndrome. Other people can have a hormonal issue like in the condition androgen insensitivity syndrome, which a person who's genetically male uh, one X, one Y, is resistant to male hormones or androgens in their system. As a result, the person has some of the physical traits of a male, um, of a woman, but the genetic makeup of a man. Uh, that's about 1 in 13,000 births. Or an individual can have an enzyme production problem like congenital adrenal hyperplasia. That's about 1 in 13,000 births. And for, for most of those, there are in, in interventions that can help uh, those people um, move forward with kind of a normal life. But here for our purposes is, this is what's interesting, is intersex doesn't fit in the category of transgender. In fact, the intersex society of North America wants nothing to do with the whole transgender conversation. And if you think about this, this makes sense. Because a person who's born with ambiguous primary or secondary sex characteristics wants nothing more to have that kind of resolved and to move on with life. That person's not looking to be like the poster person for a cause. They just want to identify like inwardly, like with their body in a primary gender identity and kind of move on. And, and this is interesting because, you know, the intersex society of North America is by no means conservative uh, politically or any other way. It's not allied with Christian values or they wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, we love your talk this morning, Pastor Bradford, right? Um, and the 
transgender community would love to have that group join in the gender revolution. Um, but this is what's fascinating to me, uh, is that this group says we want nothing to do with this. And I think that's very telling. That's very telling. So enough on terms. Okay, I know that I've bored some of you to tears this morning, and you're like, I knew all this already. Can we get off on with the sermon? So now the sermon, okay? So here's my point. Here, here's my main point that I want you to understand, is that all people are naked and, and ashamed. All people, since the curse, are on a spectrum where we look at our bodies and they don't look like we think they should. And they don't act like we think they should. And we don't like them as they are. All people at some point in their life identify with that. So, case in point, celebrities. So let's walk through some celebrities. Uh, Selma Hayek. She says, I don't actually have a good body, but if everybody thinks so, I guess it means I'm a good actress. I've acted the part of a girl who has a very good body. I know how to dress. There's some tricks you can pull off. Uh, Megan Fox. I don't think I'm a sexy, beautiful woman. I look like Ted Nugent in a black wig. Come on, that's funny. Well, you guys lighten up this morning, okay? Um, Penelope Cruz. I don't think I'm beautiful. I can look good, and I can look ugly. Scarlett Johansson. Johansson. Uh, in normal life, I don't think I'm any more aware of femininity or sexuality than any other woman. I don't walk around feeling sensual. Of course, I'm a girl. Aren't we all like that when we wake up every morning and go, oh, God, what happened when I slept last night? And Ryan Gosling. I'm not that good looking. I actually think I'm kind of a weird looking guy. Now, what, what do all these people have in common? You may not agree with this, but the American public thinks these are the beautiful people. These are sexy people. These are the people that were like, that is what we want to look like. That's what we want to watch on screen. That's what I wish I looked like, right? I mean, you know, and if this is what I want you to think is like, if they are naked and ashamed, if, if they look in the mirror, and are articulating some form of body shame. I mean, what hope do I have? I mean, look at this. Right? Look at this. I mean, if they feel this way, how do you feel? I mean, how, how do you feel about the body that you're in? Um, this is what all of us feel in front of the mirror. Some form of body shame. Now, you may not feel that now, but you will if you don't. You will. And, and I think Genesis 2 and 3 form for us a fascinating case study on that subject of, of body shame. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we just read about Adam and Eve who were naked and unashamed in perfect relationship with God, with each other, and with their own bodies. And one verse later, we're going into chapter 3 in the fall, and suddenly they're naked and ashamed. And they're looking at the same bodies. They're looking at the same bodies as in chapter 2, which tells us there is a radical change in their perspective. That's what's changed. And this is why I want you to hear this this morning, is that you are on the spectrum. No, not that spectrum, although maybe. But like you're, you're on the spectrum of body shame. Every last person in this room, and whether you feel this acutely right now, or this morning getting ready for church, you will feel this at some point in your life. And so, you know, whether it's uh, about your thighs or about you have ears that are too high or too low or one eye that's misshapen or you, your butt looks bad in jeans 
or you know, you, you, go, you think your nose is ugly. I mean, we all have some form of this. And if you don't now, you will. Because as you age, you begin to say things like, my body is betraying me. I used to look good. What happened? Right? Someone hit me in the head overnight. Uh, I don't want, I don't even work right anymore. You know, like those are the experiences that we have in aging where we all experience some level of body shame. And, and look, you know, if Ryan Gosling and Penelope Cruz can articulate this, what about us? I mean, see, if you're here and you're completely cisgender and, and you're listening to me define all these categories of transgender and gender dysphoria and you're like, I can't identify in any way with all those people, you are not paying attention because the fall affects every person in their body. Every person in their body. There's alienation. You've missed it because you are also on the spectrum, on the body shame spectrum. You are also not naked and unashamed. None of us. And, and here's the big problem, okay? Adam and Eve did something that we've done ever since, every one of us. This is what we've done. Uh, they took on themselves the role of deciding good and evil. They, they took on themselves of deciding what's right for me. Um, that's the big step we should never have taken. Now, you may think like, that's not a big deal, right? We, we do that all the time, deciding what's right for me. That's, that's what we do all the time. And the, the, the answer of Genesis, the whole answer of like all of the Bible is a resounding no to that. Like that's the big problem. Because when Adam and Eve began to view themselves with God out of the picture, they stepped off a cliff. And the perspective of me without God in the picture is I decide what's right for me, you decide what's right for you, and it's incredibly destructive. Um, see, this is what they should never have seen themselves without God in the picture. And, and what has resulted from that is profound shame, Pro profound shame about themselves and about their bodies. They saw themselves apart for God, and this is the problem, is that you do too, and I do too. And that, that's what is so broken in us as fallen sinners. So, so broken. And yet, there's good news even in this saddest of chapters in the Bible. It, it, there's good news in the saddest of chapters. Um, Genesis 3 tells us that God has a plan for body shame. Look at verse 15. This is a curse that God is pronouncing over the serpent, over Satan. And this is what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what's pictured there is that there would come a, a, a future generation, a future child of this human couple, generations later, who would come and step and crush with his foot the head of the serpent. And even as he's doing so, he's being struck. He's being bitten, right? There's a bruising that's happening. Even as he's crushing, this is called by theologians, the euangelion, the first evangelism. Hey, even in the sad right here, there's a pro proclamation of gospel hope for those with body shame. Like This is right here, that there would come God in human form, the person Jesus Christ, who at the very like place of crushing our enemies of sin and death and Satan on the cross, would himself be disfigured in the process. I mean, isn't this what Isaiah says of him? Jesus on the cross is marred beyond human recognition. In his body 
In his physical body, he suffers and is disfigured for those with shame. And what's, what's more, his death was designed purposely to shame him. The, the Romans perfected what had been designed by the Persians. The Persians designed uh, crucifixion to be an agonizing and shameful death. And the, the Romans, man, they just made it even more grotesque. And they did so so that a person would hang naked, exposed for everybody to see and for the birds to come and pick at and for all to see publicly shamed. It was a deterrent to other people. Don't break this law. And Jesus, in his body, takes on the suffering of and all the shame of humanity in his body. Now, I want you to think about this. God doesn't send Jesus with a little magic wand where he's like, forgiven. Right? He, he doesn't come and pronounce over us like, loved and accepted. How does he, the only way that he undoes what's done by the curse, the only that way that he is able to undo the effects of our body shame is himself being crushed, himself being shamed, himself taking on in his own person this kind of suffering. And he does so that anyone on the spectrum anyone on the spectrum of body shame is welcomed in. It's promised you can be made whole. And to, to what end? To what end is this? Because grace has no spectrum. Grace has no spectrum. Do you, do you know that? I mean, do you really know that God whole, looks at us with no spectrum? All of us image bearers are the same to him. Gender dysphoric, transgender, cisgender, all broken by the fall, all sinners, all of us who love to play God and decide what's right for me, we all stand before him exactly the same. There is no inherent righteousness in being cisgender, and there is no inherent curse in being transgender. Like, sorry, nobody's a snowflake. All of us are people where, you know, it's pronounced of us, no one is righteous, no, not one. All of us are on the spectrum of body shame, and yet, because of the fall, and yet there's no spectrum in grace. There's no spectrum in grace. God welcomes all sinners who come to him. There's, th this, is, um, this is the great news. I mean, this is the great news that all of us come as sinners who need a God who comes to heal us in radical ways. And even though we measure differently, we measure each other differently, that's, there's no spectrum in grace. There's just no spectrum. And do you believe that? Do we believe that? I don't think we do. I really don't think we do. I don't think Christians act that way. If we did, if we believed in our hearts that we're all on the spectrum of body shame, and yet that the gospel doesn't categorize us in relationship to those who are not so bad and those who are really bad, then we would be really different. And we would be different in two ways. First is that among the body of Christ, there would be no ick factor. You know what the ick factor is? The yuck factor? It's when we look at another person, another image bearer, and there's, there's um, because we're Southerners, in our hearts we go yuck. But in our outward behavior, there's just, it's just a little pause, a little holding back, a little of a, a blink, and people know. They know that Christians all the time think of other image bearers in the category of other. And, and friends, that belies a deep ignorance of gospel, 
of the grace of God for sinners. That, you know, all of us come unworthy. All of us need grace. And, and so, like, there should never be an ick factor, a yuck among Christians. You know, anybody who comes to our church, I mean, this is my prayer, anyone who comes to our church and they don't fit your categories of what you're like and what your friends are like, man, they are embraced and they are welcomed in and there's no hesitancy and there's a hug and there's no, like, pause. That's my prayer. But second is that we would have a less, less and less of an ick factor for our own bodies. For our own bodies. I mean, we'd be, let's just call it what it is. We'd be less vain. We'd be less concerned about your, your uh, weird ears or your big butt or how you look in jeans. <laughs> you'd just be more lighthearted. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying like, hey, you'd quit the gym today and you just eat Big Macs for the rest of your life. Like, you know, there's a good, right stewardship, right, of, of caring for our bodies and exercising and eating right. But this, this is what this would look like. There would be less of an ick factor for our own bodies where we just would care a little bit less. We'd be a little bit less self-conscious and comparing all the time and measuring. We'd, st- we'd stop that. I mean, it just wouldn't be a big deal as it is right now. It's too big a deal. It occupies too much space. Don't we do this? I mean, don't we do this? See, to really live in the gospel in this area is to begin to see your own body and other bodies in light with God in the picture, with Him in the picture, that He has made us as image bearers, and part of what He does to redeem is not just forgive us our sins, and not just that one day there'll be wiping of every tear and new heavens and new earth, but that He will give new bodies. It will give perfect new bodies, and you will have a perfect relationship to that body. And the things, the ways that you experience brokenness and unwholeness and ways that you hate the way you look and you you feel ugly and weird all the time, all that will be healed and made whole. If you are in Christ, then that is the hope. Isn't that good hope? Don't we want to cling to that? Don't we want to be reshaped and remade by that as a community? And don't we want to believe in our souls of souls that the gospel is that good news? Amen? Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.